Lindsay Baum want her back. She was on her way home from a friend's house last Friday when she disappeared from the small town of McCleary, Washington. The state patrol is scanning the ground by air. Searchers are combing the town on horseback and checking out nearby trails. This was an evil human being that saw my child and for whatever reason thought they had a right to take her. Melissa Baum's daughter, Lindsay, disappeared on June 26, 2009, just shy of her 11th birthday. FBI agents teamed up with local investigators to fan through McClary and find something that leads back to Lindsay Baum. I'm here today to share with you that we've brought Lindsay home. Sadly, she was not recovered as we and her family had hoped and prayed these last nine years. There are no words. The fact is a monster stole my 10-year-old little girl, and they murdered her, and they dumped her like trash in the woods. So my fight now has turned from looking for my daughter to finding who killed her. I urge anyone that has any information, any knowledge, of any kind to please come forward. We need we need justice. Um, the people who did this to Lindsay deserve to be punished. And the children still out there, your children deserve to be safe. And as long as we allow monsters like this on our streets, none of our children are safe. Is your true and correct name Paul James Beaker? Yes. It's just your average everyday person that, you know, I don't think that any most people that we've talked to in this case so far had no suspicions whatsoever and didn't realize that, you know, he was involved in this, and, and nor did we. This one, I'd say, was sophisticated and I believe that it was thought out and planned, and, and we didn't think this was a random act. So that's pretty, pretty unusual. Are these connected? And if so, you know, can we prove that they were connected? Welcome to Truth in the Shadow. My name is Peggy Simmons. On today's episode, we'll be looking at Paul James Beaker, a man who has pled not guilty to the charges of kidnapping and sexual assault of a minor in McCleary in 2003. He was also named by police as a suspect in the disappearance of Lindsay Baum. Welcome to Episode 3 of our series investigating the murder of 10-year-old Lindsay Baum. If you haven't heard our first two episodes, we'd strongly suggest you go back and start from the beginning. I'm joined again in the studio by Tracy Isaac. Hello, Tracy. Hey, Peggy. Glad to be back. I'm excited that we've gotten to the Paul Beaker episode of our series because you and I have been gathering information on this guy for a while now, and I really want to share it with our listeners. But before we get to that, we want to address a few things. Most specifically, the rumor that Lindsay Baum was killed by an intoxicated driver. In fact, someone hit us up on social media with this theory. This theory has been out there online and in the community in McCleary for a while now, so I do think it's worth addressing it for once and for all. Yeah, so the thrust of the intoxicated driver theory goes like this. Two brothers were driving back from the casino in Shelton, high on meth. The driver hit Lindsay while she was walking just past the exit for McCleary on North Summit Road, the 3rd Avenue, the Main Street, and instantly killed her. Terrified of the consequences of their actions, they then picked up Lindsay's body and presumably disposed of her in Ellensburg. A rumor I heard was that the body was in two different places and the brothers junked the car and got rid of it. And so, you know me, I went on a rabbit chase. Of course. <laughs> looking for two brothers who were known around the area and fit the descriptions given, and I found a few. 
Uh, in particular, there were two brothers who were known meth addicts, and they were wanted for the robbery and murder of an elderly couple in Lewis County, which is the neighboring county to Gray's. In the court records for the double homicide of the couple, an informant that was housed in the jail came forward at trial, and he stated that one of the brothers had told him the story of the hit-and-run that allegedly killed Lindsay. He said she was walking down by the McCleary exit. They were high, they hit her, killed her instantly, and then disposed of her body in two different places, one being in a crab pot in Westport. This was prior to the discovery of the skull in the crab pot, and this is probably where Dale got his infamous quote. It was all over the news. Yeah, and just to clarify that, Dale had said, according to the law enforcement, that Lindsay had been murdered and disposed of in crab pots. But according to Dale, he was just basically saying, by the time these guys figure it out, that Lindsay would have been murdered and disposed of in crab pots. And maybe he heard something about that story about those guys, and that was the reference to the crab pots. I could totally see that being, I mean, it's such a similar story that I could see that being very possible. And at this time in 2009, the brothers had moved to Alaska, but had family in Aberdeen. And as anyone knows in that area, the only time you really go through McCleary is when you're headed toward the casino in Shelton. One of the brothers died a week prior to the arrest for the double homicide, and the surviving asshole was brought up on more charges post-conviction, and these were for raping his stepdaughter for years. Yeah, I mean, these guys do look very, very suspicious. However, I'm assuming that law enforcement has looked into this. And another issue with the theory is that, as we discussed before, Lindsay was walking down a main street on a hot summer evening, and there probably would have been a lot of people outside that night who would have seen or heard an accident like that. I mean, I've never heard the sound of a person getting hit by a car, but sadly I have heard the sound of a dog being hit by a car, and it is loud. And then there's the fact that law enforcement searched the town up and down, and I don't believe they ever found an accident site. Even if you believe that someone could have an accident, grab a dead body from the ground, and make off with it, there's just no way that the same person would have time to clean up afterwards. I would think that after the story from the informant came out in 2012, they most likely looked into that theory as well. Yeah, so we don't buy the intoxicated driver theory, and apparently neither do, does law enforcement. That being said, we do want you guys to keep hitting us up if you know anything. Um, even this this uh, intoxicated driver story, there's enough meat to it that there could be something there. We don't think there is, but there is, you know, a lot of supporting information for this. Honestly, we have been helped in what we're doing by so many people who were involved in this case from the get-go. A lot of our research is building on research that was done before we even came along. Yeah, there's been a very dedicated group of people who have been working on this from the very beginning. And we are extremely grateful that they've shared so much of their materials and thoughts with us. And we want to keep you safe. So please know your tips are anonymous. To be honest, for the case to be solved, it's probably going to take a village. And so in that spirit, please do keep your thoughts and ideas coming. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be dissecting the life of Paul James Beaker in this episode. We'll bring you up to date on who Beaker is, what he's been charged with, and how he can be tied to Lindsay's case. But this most recent tip about the drunk or drugged driver hitting Lindsay and hiding the body has us realizing that we actually haven't told you who we think this perp is that we're looking for in this case, what we know about the perp. 
part of the problem is is that we know so very little in this case. Yeah, and and when I suggested we try to figure this shit out the other day, you were like, the case is too hard. It is hard. (laughs) But I must admit, there are some things we can say more or less for sure about this perp. I think we can safely say this perp was a man. Yes, I think that the motive was probably sexual, and, and that makes it more likely that it was a man. And can we agree that the perp had a car? Yeah. While we don't know for sure that she was taken by somebody in a car, we can say, based on how far away her remains were from McCleary, that somebody would have needed a car to transport those remains. We're also pretty sure that the perp had a location where they could interact with Lindsay uninterrupted. Yeah, that seems likely, although obviously the car could have been used for that location as well, so we can say that for sure. But what we can say for sure is this wasn't a random serial killer just passing through town. Yeah, while nothing is absolutely impossible, serial killers tend to hunt where they can find prey. And that's why you'll find pedophiles turning up around amusement parks, parks in general, and outside schools. And, you know, sexual predators in general around universities, basically where there are young women that they can prey upon. There was no reason for a serial killer to suppose that Lindsay would be walking down the street on that evening in question. And to be clear, we're not saying that Lindsay wasn't killed by a serial killer. We have no idea. But I think that we feel comfortable saying that if she was taken by a serial killer, they were local to the area. The first and most obvious case is that of Nancy Moyer, who went missing from Tenino a couple of months before Lindsay disappeared. Nancy was 36 years old, so in terms of victimology, that's a little bit off. However, she did look very childlike, and there are physical similarities to Lindsay. And Nancy went missing in March of 2009, so three months before Lindsay went missing. If the same perp is responsible for both of those crimes, then it would seem to indicate that he was on a bit of a spree. Yep. And another case that we feel could be attached to Lindsay is that of Danielle Griffiths. She was a 17-year-old who went missing from Shelton in 2014, and she was found dead and buried in Tumwater, just outside of Olympia. And then there's the case of Kylie Ellis, whose death was ruled a suicide. Now, this 12-year-old, she disappeared in December of 2008, and her body was found in June 2009. And one that I've been looking at is the death of Adriana Jackson, Adriana was from Lakewood, Washington, and she disappeared at the age of 10 while she was walking to school in December of 2005. Her body was found in April 2006 in Tillicum, and now this is the same area, again, that South Sound area. It's believed that they know who may have done this crime, but it does remain unsolved to this day. So we'll be looking at those cases moving forward, along with any others that we think could be related to Lindsay's. But I think we're also aware that Lindsay could be a one-off. Well, I mean, what do you think about the idea of Lindsay being a one-off? It seems like a waste to decide to pull something like this off and then just never do it again, but then again, I'm not a killer. One thing I will say is that I'm pretty sure that this was not the first time that the perp committed a sex crime, whether or not they got caught. Perps tend to escalate their behavior over time, so, you know, somebody can start with peeping and stealing underwear, and then they escalate to rape, and then they escalate to rape and murder. That's why before Paul Beaker was even arrested for the 2003 rape, we had actually put in a records request regarding that rape. Yeah, honestly, the thing that makes Paul Beaker our best suspect to date is he's charged with one of those lesser type crimes. How opportunistic do we think the killer was in Lindsay's case? Well, as you mentioned, you know, he couldn't have just known that she was walking in the street that evening. 
So I would say that's pretty opportunistic. Yeah, no one knew she was on Maple that night, and if she turned on right on 6th, as the dogs indicate, no one would have known that either. Also, just to be clear, if she was being followed, the nature of the streets in McCleary are that she it would be really obvious, especially in a car. And just to remind everybody, Lindsay's friend Michaela lived on a dead-end street, so a car hovering around there would be very obvious, I would think. Of course, we did hear of one car that was hovering, and that was the white car that was pulled over on Maple ahead of Lindsay. That car was seen by the same witness who claimed she saw Lindsay on Maple on her way to work. That was the car with its tail end sticking into the road that the witness had to swerve to miss. It would be hard to figure out how that car could be following her, especially since it was pulled up ahead of her. Granted now, the car could have passed her and pulled over, but again, the stretch of road from the dead end to where it was pulled over wouldn't have been much, and it would have been kind of obvious. The one thing that makes that car interesting, of course, is that Lindsay mentioned to her mother, Melissa, that a white car had been following her. Now, mind you, if Lindsay went right on 6th, as seems indicated, she wouldn't have passed the car. But if she kept walking straight ahead and had to walk to the right of the white car to pass it, then the car would have successfully obscured her from at least one side of the road. But grabbing Lindsay in that context would require the driver shifting to the right-hand passenger seat to grab her. Yeah, I mean, in general, I feel that if she was taken in a car, she was lured inside. It's just really fucking complicated to grab someone walking on the road and get them into your car unseen. I mean, think about it. How would you do it? Um, I mean, like, I'm not in the market to be kidnapping people, so I feel like... (laughs) But think about it. You're in the car. How do you do it? You're in the driver's seat. In that situation, as a kidnapper, um, this is stupid. This is... I would probably just jump out the door and do a little fire drill around the car. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's pretty high risk, too, because the unsub would be chancing so many variables, such as her screaming or leaving something behind, any sign of a struggle, uh, tire marks. And so I don't know. I don't think that we feel she was grabbed off the street by someone in a car. So I think we could safely say that she wasn't just grabbed off the street by a stranger danger, you know, in a car. It's more likely that there were two people in that car, if anything. Uh, yeah. So if we're talking about a single perp, it's more likely that somebody lured her into their vehicle and then took off with her than that they just grabbed her right off the street. If the perp didn't initially abduct her in a car, it's likely she just walked into the crime scene. I mean, for instance, if she went to her friend's house and instead of encountering that friend, encountered her killer... The perp could also simply have been inside a house along whatever route she took home that night. They could then have lured her into their home, maybe using a dog or something else that might interest a 10-year-old, or even grabbed her right off the street and pulled her inside. It seems a lot more daring, but in the Holly Jones case in Toronto, that's exactly what happened. The perp in that case took the 10-year-old right off the street of her busy Toronto neighborhood, and no one saw him. But that still seems highly unlikely. So, to summarize, the perp most likely was a man. We think the person was local to McCleary. They definitely had a car because the body disposal requires that. We think it's likely but not necessary that they may have had a secondary location that she could have been moved to. And by that we mean some kind of house or shelter where she could have been kept. Given the nature of the disposal location in Ellensburg, we believe that the perp will have an evident tie to that location. This is not a place you just stumble upon. So anyone who comes up as a suspect should be considered in terms of how they might connect to Ellensburg. 
up in the mountains is a hunting region. Is the perp a hunter? Is he a hiker? How often do they go up and camp and where do they go camping? And finally, this person would not have an alibi for around 9.30 to 10.30 p.m. on June 26, 2009. That's more than we expected when we started trying to figure out what we know about this perp. Yeah, and you can see how the two main suspects we've discussed so far, Dale, the local bad boy, and Volunteer, both kind of meet those requirements. Both had cars, both actually had secondary locations where she could have been kept, and the volunteer had a business that Lindsay could easily have walked into or been lured into right on the main route she was taking home. Both of them had some cause for concern with their alibis around the time Lindsay went missing. The volunteer especially, but not to disregard that Dale's alibi was his family. And honestly, before Paul Beaker came upon the scene, it seemed like both of these guys were pretty good suspects. I came into the case pretty sure Dale was the culprit. Then I switched to the volunteer. And it should probably come as no surprise that I'm now kind of keen on Beaker as the perp. Coming up, we'll be taking a good look at Mr. Beaker and seeing how he could connect to Lindsay's case. On our last show, we introduced our new person of interest, Paul Beaker. He was recently charged with a kidnap and sexual assault in McCleary in 2003. And to keep the timeline straight, this rape occurred well before Lindsay went missing because she only went missing in 2009. And just to summarize what happened again, the victim was a 17-year-old who attended the local McCleary High School. She exited the carport and as she was heading to her house, she was grabbed from behind and shoved to the ground. This rapist was taking a pretty big risk though because her dad was home at the time. So after kicking her numerous times into submission, he threw her into her own car and drove off. From there, she was taken to a secondary location and raped, and then he drove her to an empty firehouse. He left her zip-tied to her car wheel and then retrieved bike that he'd stashed behind the firehouse and took off. I think I should mention here that there was a guy Lindsay reported to cops for walking in on her in the park bathroom, and that guy took off on a bicycle. Oh my god. Bikes are the new white car. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, to continue, news accounts state that in December 2020, Gray's Harbor Sheriff's Office Deputy Chief Darren Wallace submitted the DNA taken from the 2003 rape to a forensic lab that works with familial DNA. These labs are gaining a lot of traction in cold cases and also in figuring out the identity of unknown remains. Just recently, Walker County Jane Doe, a 14-year-old victim found in Texas in 1980, was finally identified using forensic genealogy by Othram Lab. I've been following this case for a few years, and the rumor is they may have a suspect as well. The process works as follows. Basically, they take DNA from a crime or an unidentified body, and then they cross-reference it with DNA that's been submitted to sites like GEDmatch or DNA Solves by Othram. In doing this, they're able to locate relatives of the unknown subject or even the subject themselves. In the 2003 case, the lab in question came back with a short list of potential relatives to the unsub that included Paul Beaker, a man who was local to McCleary until about 2017. Yeah, I can just imagine what they thought when they saw those results. Detective Wallace and Detective Sergeant Paul Logan they then tailed Beaker for a bit, and on June 3, 2021, they were able to obtain his DNA from two coffee cups that he discarded. On June 9, 2021, Washington State Patrol Crime Lab matched the DNA from the coffee cups 
to the DNA collected from the 2003 victim. Paul Beaker was arrested on Tuesday, June 15, 2021, and he was booked into the Grays Harbor County Jail, and on Wednesday, June 16, he pleaded not guilty to charges of rape, kidnapping, burglary, felony harassment, and taking a motor vehicle without permission. Paul was in McCleary at the time of his arrest. Yeah, I think the story is that they sent a registered mail to his post office box in McCleary, and they were basically waiting for him when he arrived to pick that registered mail up. And we will be talking about that post office box a little more later. Yeah, we found some pretty interesting stuff in that regard. At the time of Paul Beaker's arrest, Grace Harbor Under Sheriff Brad Johansson told local station KCPQ-TV that there are eerie similarities between the two cases, referring to the 2003 rape and Lindsay's 2009 kidnapping and murder. He went on to say, how many kidnappers do you have in a small town? And that brings us more or less up to date on the rape that Paul Beaker is currently charged with. We'll keep you posted on court appearances and on the case in general. At the moment, the case is scheduled to go to trial on the 4th of January, 2022. Since Beaker was arrested in June, we've spent a lot of time gathering as much information about him as possible, and we plan to share that with you as well as how I may be connected to Lindsay's case later in this episode. And just to remind everyone that Beaker has pled not guilty to that sexual assault. Just this last week, his legal team applied for a change of venue, and the change of venue request hasn't yet been ruled on by the judge, so we'll be keeping you updated on his case. For now, though, we're going to play more of that interview we did with Dale. Dale was in the same class as the victim of the 2003 rape, and he tells us that the crime really impacted their final year in school. So Dale, have you been following the recent development in that 2003 unsolved sexual assault that occurred in McCleary uh, with the suspect named Paul Beaker? Absolutely. And what are your thoughts on that? Do you see him as a good potential suspect? It is a very viable possible uh, suspect. And the simple fact that, you know, the 2003, it would be a very close similar age as to, you know, I mean, just a couple of years older. But seriously, it's the same, same age gap. And do you personally know the victim? Yes, I grew up for, um, ever since I was in kindergarten. And do you remember how that affected the town of McCleary? It was very intense because I, you know, I was in, I was in body conditioning with uh, her boyfriend, um, and her boyfriend at the time was the uh, son. It impacted the school. I mean, tremendously. You know, kind of the kind of the same as Lindsay. A lot of people didn't want to be outside past a certain time, so on and so forth, because of the, uh, you know, what had just happened and the fact that they couldn't find the guy and. You know, it's just, it's very, it's very interesting and very, um, unsettling. Yes. Coming from such a small town, do you know Paul Beaker? Have you ever met him? No, I've never met the guy. Come to find out that he's like, he was like a uh, baseball or soccer coach or something like that from McClary. I, I didn't know any of that. I've never heard of the guy's name. Very weird that you don't hear about a guy or don't even know the guy, but he lives in your city. Right, and then he can disappear for years, and then and then evidence links him to a rape, you know, and and, and then you just turn around and you know give him a, a bill of uh, basically twenty five thousand dollars, even though it's two hundred fifty, ten percent is twenty five thousand. You make it very easy for him to bond out. In the meantime, you know, 
you just you, you watch me get attacked by uh, three inmates. You watch you watch me get brought into jail several times over bullshit that was basically inflated. And you know, it's just it's very frustrating to watch something like that happen. You can tell that this rape really impacted the people in McCleary. Yeah, after Beaker was arrested, I was talking to some law enforcement types from the area, and they tell me that this rape really stuck out at the time because shit like that just does not happen in McCleary. So we're going to spend some time telling you everything we know about Paul Beaker and then get into how he looks as a suspect in Lindsay's case. The interesting thing about Beaker as a suspect is that he's from McCleary. And the first thing I thought when I found out that Lindsay was buried in Ellensburg way on the other side of Washington State was this motherfucker is from McCleary <laughs> because she was if she was just taken by a rando passing through town, they could have dumped her literally anywhere in McCleary. Yeah, there are a lot of wooded areas in and around McCleary that would have served just as well for body disposal. The last time we were there, we actually lost count of all the different places she could have been left in and around McCleary. But to me, by putting her in Ellensburg, it's like the purpose saying, pay no attention to the people of McCleary. I, it's like, I don't know, that he, could have, he couldn't have moved her further away from McCleary if he tried. Which also kind of lends to the fact that we're dealing with an unsub who's concealing his crime. He isn't just leaving the body where it can be easily disposed of out of convenience. He went out of his way to conceal her remains all the way up a mountain. We actually want to talk a lot more about the body disposal location in Ellensburg, and we'll be doing that next week. But for now, we'll deal with Mr. Beaker's biography. And finding out stuff about this guy has been quite the chore. He really is Mr. Cellophane. There, but invisible. I so want to sing that song right now. (laughs) (laughs) And he seems to be invisible in real life, too. Based on what Dale said in the interview, I mean, Dale's family is a legacy family in McCleary. It's kind of odd that he doesn't know the Beakers, who have been in McCleary since, what, the early 1990s? Also seems kind of deliberate, especially in this day and age of social media. It was extremely hard for us to find something even as simple as a photo of this guy. Yep, because when you look for Paul Beaker, it's like there's nothing there. And that, by the way, is why we've named this episode Mr. Cellophane. Yeah, and by the looks of most of those photos, he's too busy coaching to even be aware that his photo is being taken. Yeah, I mean, I really do get the impression that he actively avoids the camera, much like I do. <laughs> and, of course, we do have one other photo of him, and that's his mugshot, which, again, he didn't choose to pose for. I know that we're going on a lot about photos, but in this day and age, you have to work hard to avoid having copious photos of yourself out there. It's just one of those things that make you go, hmm. Paul has no social media presence to speak of, so sleuthing him is tough. But luckily, we have databases. And according to our databases, Paul James Speaker was born October 9th, 1970. He just turned 51, but we won't be wishing him a belated happy birthday. For real. Anyway, he was born in Aberdeen, Washington State, we think. Um, But whether or not he was born there, we do know that according to his father's obituary, his family lived in Aberdeen from 1970 to 1988. Based on that obituary, his father was a teacher at a Catholic high school. We don't have any information about what his mother Rose did, but I should mention that we've heard from people who know the family. The father was actually a janitor and not a teacher. 
And to be clear, we don't care what his father did. Neither of my parents even graduated from high school, so I'm not in the position of pointing fingers about whose parents have, you know, a college education. But I do think it's kind of telling, if the dad wasn't a teacher but was in fact a janitor, that the obit lied about that. Gives you a little insight into the family, maybe. Like, appearance is more important than reality. Yeah, I mean, my family had issues, but I don't fault them for their jobs. People really need to get over this class horseshit. He comes from a pretty big family. He had six siblings, and four of them are living. He's the youngest child. As a youngest child myself, that tells me a lot about him. Where are you in birth order? I'm the youngest, too. Okay, so I'm not going to learn a damn thing from you, then. (laughs) As the youngest in my family, I feel like I got away with a lot of shit and didn't have to be nearly as responsible as my brother. What was your experience? Yeah, I'd say that's accurate. Not quite as dependent on as the oldest. Getting back to Beaker, in 1988, the family returned to Alaska, where it seems his parents may have been from. In 88, Beaker would have been 18, Do we think he went back with them? I do know that at some point, I think I found a hunting license for him in Alaska. I believe it was at this time that he moved in with his girlfriend, Shannon, as one of his addresses, the home she grew up in. Ah. We know that he married Shannon on September 24th, 1994, when Paul was 24. And Shannon and Paul then purchased a sizable piece of property just outside of McCleary and across the county line in Mason County. And to be clear, the 2003 rape and Lindsay's case were both investigated by Gray's Harbor County law enforcement. We raise that just because, in fact, his property was on Mason County. He and his wife seemed to have a good thing going. They had a son and then a daughter, and they seemed to be pretty involved in their kids' schooling and after-school activities. Yeah, Beaker was actually a coach of the Alma Girls Soccer League, and I think Shannon was involved in the league to some degree herself. And since you probably want to know, we asked around about him as a coach, especially because he worked with girls. And no one had any complaints. Yeah, he wasn't beloved, but he wasn't exactly hated either. I thought it was interesting, though, that while he started as an assistant coach, he was pretty much running the whole thing by the next year. So sounds like the kind of guy who wants to be in charge. Yeah, and we've heard from others who knew Paul and Shannon that Paul was the kind of guy who had no problem telling his wife what to do, and even though Shannon is a pretty strong woman herself, she followed his lead. Shannon seems to come from a pretty stable family background. Her family were known to be big supporters of their daughter's sports team when she was growing up. Her mom's obituary makes her mom sound so wonderful. Right? They both come from pretty strong families. Paul has several brothers and sisters in and around Washington State. And in 2003, around the time of that rape, Shannon had recently given birth to their second child. Interestingly, the birth of a child is one of the several trigger events that can set someone off if they have criminal tendencies. This, of course, is according to the FBI profilers. Uh, What are the other uh, trigger events? Oh, man. Um, Any sort of trauma, a death of a parent or a loved one, divorce, really anything that's out of the ordinary can trigger an event if it stresses somebody to that point. It makes you wonder what was going on in his life in June 2009. Inquiring minds want to know. In terms of employment, the only thing we can find is that he worked for Mac Miller, the Pacific Northwest-based construction company. Where he seems to have been involved in duct installation or something like that. I actually, one of my first jobs in North America was selling duct installations. Just a little small factoid about me. Uh, 
you had an ex who did a similar gig as well, didn't you? I did. He was a HVAC technician, and so as far as tools and things, he pretty much had a general toolbox with some specialty items, um, and he would always have tools like uh, snips, your duct tape, of course, you're handling ducts, electrical components to test voltage, and wire ties. Nothing like having a handy-dandy kidnap-and-kill kit on hand. In 2017, Shannon and Paul's relationship seemed to be coming apart. The pair split up, and Paul moved on with a much younger woman. I think she was about 23. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Paul and Shannon were divorced on September 15th, 2017, and Shannon was awarded the property outside of McCleary. Paul and his new wife eventually relocated to Unumclaw. So Paul was living in Unumclaw when he was arrested in 2021. Someone on the McCleary Uncensored Facebook page claimed that Paul is no longer working for Mac Miller. But we've since found out that that person is related to the family, so it's hard to accept that at face value. Yeah, that might be a case of an unreliable narrator. Yeah, because when Paul was granted bail, his attorneys asked for him to have access to a whole lot of counties in Washington state for work. And if he's with Mac Miller, they certainly do work in all of those different counties. Yeah, if there's one thing we've learned from lurking on the Mac Miller site, it's that they have crews all over Washington state all the time. So if he's still working for them, he would need access to all those counties. It's actually kind of horrifying that he's gotten access to all those counties, given that the poor rape victim lives in one of those counties. I agree. The victim's husband actually wrote a statement requesting that Beaker not be granted bail given the impact on her. And despite that, as discussed earlier, Beaker was granted bail. I feel really bad for that victim. I found the part of the warrant where they talk about her being terrified and running around closing the curtains in case he was looking in to be one of the worst parts of that warrant. On June 23rd, 2021, the prosecutor announced that the 10% required of Beaker's bail had been met and he was released. That 10%, as Dale mentioned, amounts to about $25,000 and based on Paul's various properties alone, it was a pretty easy bail to meet. No kidding, and it really stands out when you consider the kinds of bail other people in court are receiving. We know all this because due to the pandemic, all Grays Harbor hearings are being held online. And to get back to the issue of Paul's bail, when we were waiting for one of his hearings to start, we actually saw a woman who'd burgled a house get a bail that required her to stay in her county. And that was just for a burglary. Paul Beaker is charged with rape, but he has access to most of Washington State. If listeners would like to tune in to the next hearing, we'll put up a link on the website. And if you're really interested in this particular case, we would strongly suggest that you join the Paul Beaker Time for Justice Facebook page. His last name is spelt B-I-E-K-E-R. So that's the Paul Beaker Time for Justice Facebook page. That page keeps track of hearings and also provides a lot of documentation pertaining to the case. Yeah, that case goes to trial in January. I'm very curious to see what happens when it goes to trial. And just to remind listeners, again, at this point, he has pled not guilty to that 2003 sexual assault. Coming up, we're going to take a look at Paul Beaker as a potential suspect in the Lindsay Baum kidnapping and murder. I see Mr. Beaker present. I see Mr. Walker present. All right, so this is on for omnibus. Mr. Beaker, let me just, if I could, really quickly just ask you the one question about your statements, is it, is it accurate that there, you are stipulating to the admissibility of your pre-arrest statements to law enforcement? Can you repeat that, please? 
Is it accurate that you are stipulating, meaning agreeing to the admissibility of your statements to law enforcement, at least the ones made prior to your arrest? I'm trying to wrap my head around what that's meaning. So any, any statements that you may have made to law enforcement, that the admissibility of those statements, meaning whether they, whether the court can consider them, whether the state can present those statements as evidence, that is an issue. Statements you made to law enforcement, credit you. Should not be an issue. All right, very well. All right, thank you very much. Then Mr. Walker presented agreed omnibus order, and I will sign it, and we will go from there. Readiness, December 27, and trial January 4. Welcome back to Truth in the Shadow. This is our long-awaited episode about Paul Beaker and the ways in which he could possibly be connected to Lindsay's case. The time of Beaker's arrest earlier this year, as we discussed previously, the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Department announced that he's also a suspect in the kidnap and murder of 10-year-old Lindsay Baum. In terms of where the investigators are in the Baum case, well, no one really knows, and Grays Harbor announced shortly after the arrest that they wouldn't be providing updates on the case. Yeah, so everything we know about what authorities are up to pretty much comes from rumor and gossip. And based on rumor and gossip, none of Beaker's many properties have been searched. We know locals in the vicinity of those properties, and they would likely have seen it if his places were being searched. And as Dale told us, it isn't like your neighbors can miss that your house is surrounded by cop cars and news helicopters. Yeah, and on that topic, the press would have been all over that. Obviously, I don't know the ins and outs of the case, but it feels as though Grays Harbor sheriffs could seek a warrant based on the rape, right? You could say you want to see if you could find trophies and so forth, and then, hey, if you just happen to find anything pertaining to Lindsay's case, well, that's a happy accident. But since there's a media blackout on the investigation, we don't know if the Grays Harbor sheriff actually requested a search warrant, but was denied by the judge in Beaker's case. So long story long, we don't know where authorities are in terms of linking Beaker to Lindsay's case. But we have been doing our own investigation into Paul Beaker, and I think we've unearthed a fair amount of information. And keeping all of this information organized is a bit of a chore. So we're going to break things down with Beaker by motive, means, and opportunity. And to be clear, this is definitely not going to be our last podcast about Beaker. And we'll be updating you on our investigation into him as we discover more information. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of connecting Beaker to Lindsay, though, we're going to start with a list of things we found out about him that make you go, hmm. The first thing that makes you go, hmm, about Paul Beaker is that he's been accused of sexual assault. So obviously we have someone who could have the right makeup for the perp in Lindsay's case. And then there's the fact that this dude has a fair amount of post office boxes. And there's obviously nothing wrong with having a post office box per se, but it's worth bringing up that folks with weird and often criminal sexual kinks often have post office boxes where they can receive their porn hard drive and used underwear and whatnot. Wait, <laughs> a used underwear? Yep, there are some folks out there who apparently like to purchase used underwear for reasons that I will leave to your imaginations. Gross. Hey, don't kink shame. Honestly, I only know about this factoid because of the Priyana Dennison case out in Nevada. The perp in that case apparently had a whole lot of purchased panties on his person. Okay, no kink shame whatsoever. <laughs> People should do whatever they want to as long as everybody's consenting. But coming back to the post office boxes Paul had, 
One of the very interesting things about the box in McCleary is that his ex-wife apparently didn't know he had one. Yeah, and just to remind listeners, Paul Beaker was arrested after Grays Harbor Sheriff sent him a registered letter at his McCleary post office box. Paul arrived to pick up that letter, and presto changer, he's arrested. But why on earth did he need a post office box in McCleary? Yeah, especially because he didn't live there anymore, and he has other boxes sprinkled throughout Washington State. As one does. Again, though, why have a post office box in the town that you used to live in after you've moved away from it? For real. And then there's the shit about Shannon not knowing he had the McCleary post office box. I mean, my family had a post office box growing up because we moved constantly. Paul Beaker and his family really didn't move much, and they basically had two properties in and around McCleary. So why have a post office box in the town? And why didn't Shannon know about this post office box? That is hella suspicious to me. I'm just going to say that when I don't tell my spouse about something as basic as a post office box, you can be damn sure I'm trying to hide something. And it isn't that I've taken up bunny midwifery on the side. (laughs) What is that? Bunny midwifery? (laughs) Is that something you're into or... It would be awesome, though. You must admit. (laughs) It would be awesome. Um, I would love to be able to brag that I knew somebody that was... A bunny midwife. The next thing that makes us go, hmm, is that the perp in the sexual assault, which we know is Paul, based on DNA, used a bicycle to make his escape. Well, it just so happens that there's a bicycle in Lindsay's case as well. Yeah, listeners may recall that before Lindsay went missing, she claimed that she was walked in on by a guy in the girl's bathroom. When he saw her and her friend, he apparently took off on a bike. And that was reported to the police. Yeah, and to be fair, that might have just been a guy reacting to suddenly finding himself alone with two young children in a bathroom and realizing he should get the hell out of there. But this was an instance where Lindsay actually reported the event to the police, so Lindsay felt threatened enough to go to the cops. I can't imagine what would have had to have happened to me as a 10-year-old to feel I needed to tell the cops about it, and I had plenty of creeps around. Yeah, I think that the fact that she went to law enforcement is pretty telling. The final thing that makes us go, hmm, about Paul Beaker is that he's so invisible in a day and age when invisibility is hard to achieve. He sure is, Mr. Cellophane himself. Moving on, we're going to discuss Beaker in terms of motive, means, and opportunity when it comes to the Lindsay Baum murder. And starting with motive, well, we can assume, unfortunately, that whoever took Lindsay probably had a sexual motive. And if he indeed committed the rape that he's accused of committing, well, that indicates he has committed a sexually motivated crime in the past, and this is exactly the kind of crime someone escalating to murder might commit. And it's worth mentioning that in terms of victimology, there are similarities between the two victims. So if Beaker was involved in Lindsay's case, and he's guilty of the crime he's been charged with, we can assume the same motive would apply. Moving on to means, we should probably start by giving a basic definition of what exactly is meant by means. And according to my Dick Wolf diploma in criminology and the interwebs, means in this context refers to the tools necessary to commit the crime. Now in Lindsay's case, we really don't know that much about what the means are, like we do, for instance, in the 2003 sexual assault. Yeah, in the case of the 2003 rape, the most obvious means would be duct tape, zip ties, and anything he used in that case. But when Lindsay's remains were found, they weren't able to determine things like how she'd been bound or if she was bound, how she was killed even for that matter. Yeah, all we know for sure is that she was taken on June 2009 and that her remains were found quite far away. 
But Means isn't just about tools. What else did Beaker have at his disposal that makes it possible for him to have taken Lindsay and killed her? Based on what we're looking at, the family had a Jeep Cherokee and a Geo Metro at the time of the crime. So he could have used either car to kidnap Lindsay. But more than that, he has several pieces of property he could have taken her to. There's land outside of town that didn't have a home on it until after Lindsay went missing that they possessed as well. Yeah, that property is kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's right on the county line, and it would be a great location to commit a crime without anyone knowing about it. It's a pretty good-sized parcel. Which brings us to the second property that Beaker is connected to well past 2009 when uh, Lindsay went missing. It appears they purchased the property and then were maybe renting a second location on the southwest corner of Cedar Street and 3rd. This property, which is it's pretty much just a single-room house, and it's likely where he and Shannon ended up shortly after getting married. Yeah, it's definitely a starter home. But the thing is, they still had that Cedar Street property when Lindsay went missing, even though they had two children at the time. Beaker could have taken Lindsay either to that property outside of town or to the Cedar Street address. The property would be a great location to commit a crime since it really is in the boondocks. But that being said... We can actually connect Lindsay and Beaker's Cedar Street property. Yeah, this is kind of hair standing up on the back of your neck thing. And it brings us to opportunity. Melissa Baum tells us that Lindsay used to babysit for a family directly across from an address listed for Beaker on Cedar Street. And while Lindsay wasn't babysitting that night, Melissa tells us that Lindsay routinely just hung out at that house, even when she wasn't babysitting. Given that he likely lived across the street from the babysitting house, it isn't out of the realms of possibility that Paul Beaker may have known Lindsay. Based on everything we have learned about Lindsay, we think it's quite likely that she would have gone looking for a different place to hang out that evening, especially after fighting with her brother. Yeah, I mean, she just had a fight with Josh. She may not have wanted to go straight home. Yeah, I mean, she possibly was not only in trouble with Josh, but with her mother as well. And what are the chances that she might have headed out to that babysitting place? Yeah, I mean, if she did that, we'd have to assume that the family wasn't home. But hey, maybe their neighbor Paul was. And that's actually not the only way Beaker may have known Lindsay. Probably more importantly, his child was in Lindsay's class at school, and that is not a big class. Yeah, that was quite something to find out. Now, according to Melissa Baum, she doesn't think that Lindsay knew the Beaker family, but that doesn't mean he didn't know Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, he could have seen her and asked his kid about her. And how hard would it be to get a kid into your car if you pulled over and said, hey, want a ride? Blankety blank is my child. Would you get in? For sure. And he <laughs> could have been stalking her the whole time, which would be consistent with the fact that the 2003 sexual assault victim had to have been stalked. I don't think the 2003 rape perp was hanging out at her house that day by accident. He had to have been keeping track of her coming and going to know that she would be there when he was there. And since Beaker's been arrested, at least one other woman has said that she had the impression he was following her around at one point. So this could be a pattern if he did commit the 2003 rape. Then there's the fact that, as far as we know, no one has come forward with an alibi for Beaker. Yeah, and honestly, if you know he has one, please let us know. We don't want to be putting effort into researching someone who can be easily cleared. And as we mentioned, the police are not saying anything, so we don't know. As it stands, we have to work on the assumption that no one has given Paul an alibi for the evening Lindsay went missing. In terms of where his family may have been that evening, we understand there was a routine Friday night all-ages dance party in Elma that night, and from what we can tell, Shannon, Paul's then-wife, 
was very involved in their kids' schools. Yes, so might she have been involved in that dance, and may she have taken the kids along, so no one was at home. There was also a big retirement party going on at the VFW that night, so who knows if she was there. But either way, it doesn't really matter, because the family had two properties in town. He could be at one property and his family at the other, and no one would be the wiser. Also, if he was in the construction biz at the time, he could have been out and about on a job, according to his family. Something that maybe required some weekend work. Yeah, you were married to a ducked dude. What was, he, what was that like in terms of ours? Did he get called out a lot? Yeah, one of my exes was an HVAC technician, uh, and he did insulation as well. It was pretty common for him to work 50 to 60 hours a week, um, so I thought. But then later on, which probably contributed to our divorce a bit, um, I found out he was actually at the bar drinking for a lot of those hours, and he would tell me he was working late. So not outside the realms that you can just lie about what you're doing. So it could be as simple as Beaker telling his family that he has to work through the weekend to get a job done, and no one questioned his absence because he'd already explained it. So based on what we know, Paul Beaker definitely has motive, means, and opportunity to seize Lindsay. Yeah, setting aside motive, Paul really does have sound means and opportunity in this case. Yeah, he had cars to transport her and locations he could have taken her to for privacy. For all we know, Beaker could have been the person pulled over on the right-hand side of the street in that white SUV that the witness saw. How easy would it have been to call out to her as she passed the car and offer her a ride? And honestly, knowing how outgoing Lindsay was, maybe she did know him. Maybe they're past the cross before and they've spoken. But there's more. Yeah, well, when we come back, we're going to be talking about a second dog search that was undertaken in this case. Yeah, up until now, we've been largely referring to a dog search that took place the day after Lindsay went missing, which is the 27th of June, 2009. About eight months after she went missing, they did another dog search. When we get back, we'll be talking about how that search unearthed something rather interesting when it comes to Paul James Beaker. Welcome back to Truth in the Shadow. On today's episode, we're looking into Paul Beaker, a man charged in the 2003 rape of a 17-year-old in McCleary. When Beaker was arrested, law enforcement named him as a suspect in the murder of Lindsay Baum as well. So naturally, we did a deep dive on the guy, and what we've come up with is pretty interesting. And we found a lot to tie him to Lindsay, included that she was headed in the general direction of his Cedar Street address, according to the sensifying dogs brought in after she went missing. For now, we're going to turn our focus towards that second canine search. The interesting thing about this search is that even though a fair amount of time had passed, the dogs duplicated the trail made by the dogs brought in one day after her disappearance, which is to say that they trekked from Michaela's house at the end of Maple, eastbound to 6th, and then turned right on 6th. That seems to confirm that she didn't keep walking on Maple after 6th. Yeah, and then the dogs continue trekking south on uh, uh, south to Pine, then head eastbound on that and end up back on 3rd, which is pretty much the main street of McCleary. The dogs went left on 3rd and right on Momsen, which is the street that Lindsay lived on. Yeah, and then the dogs do this curious thing where they overshoot her her house and turn left left on 1st Street, which ultimately becomes Summit and heads out of McCleary. We should take a moment to consider these findings and what they imply. Yeah, I mean, it's confusing as hell that they are trekking past our house. What do we think's going on there? 
Well, one of the types of tracking this team did was air scenting, in which they sent air pockets. And in that instance, the dog may be scenting someone in a vehicle. Yeah, I guess that would imply that maybe someone offered her a ride to her place and then, surprise, made a sudden left on first. That would take them behind Beerbauer Park, and to be honest, even if Lindsay suddenly realized what was happening at that point, no one would hear her behind Beerbauer Park. Yeah, that road takes you from a relatively residential area to a somewhat undeveloped area. It's very McCleary. But I still question whether a dog could air scent that many months later. We're going to have to follow up with someone who knows about dogs. Yeah, for sure. And just to be clear, scent work doesn't rise to the level of evidence that you can use in court. Yeah, because who knows what's going on in their little doggy brains. To really get a firm grasp of what that second canine search was trying to tell us, I sat down with a friend of mine and I went over the document to see if she would see anything that we don't see. Here's what we came up with. So the clothing was Lindsay's that her family gave to law enforcement, her mother gave to law enforcement. The clothing was put into a Ziploc bag with these scent pads. So the clothing was Lindsay's and then they're sealed in a Ziploc bag containing a brown shirt, a black fleecy pullover top, um, and then some already contained gauze pads that law enforcement had already used. And at the handler's request, just so we're all aware, there was no information from previous search efforts from that first dog search provided to the handler. So we're going to go into the first run that was performed on Wednesday, March 24th, 2010. The scent article, the black pullover pad was pulled and the dog started out at 647 Maple Street, which if you remember back was Michaela's house and the last known place that Lindsay was seen. Canine placed neutrally to the right of the door. Taking trail, canine went to the right, turned and headed east on Maple at a strong working gate. Canine did a four corners check at 7th, but Canine continued east on Maple. Canine did another four corners check at 6th, with Canine opting to turn right and head south on 6th. Staying to the left side of the road, going up a small hill, Canine turned left or east on Pine Street, crossed over Main to take an angled track across the corner of the lawn at the intersection of Pine and Main, where Canine exited out onto 3rd Street and crossed over to the right side of the roadway, turning right onto Momsen. The Canine stayed to the right side of the roadway and continued on until reaching 470 Momsen, where he turned left into a semicircle gravel drive. What's really strange about that is that 470 Momsen is actually past Lindsay Baum's house. And at this point, the handler met with the homeowner of the house at 470 Momsen, and they were given permission to continue the search. Right. So the team went behind the house to circle and exit out the main driveway to Momsen, where the canine turned to the right and headed west, taking a right onto North 1st Street. The canine stayed to the right side of the road and checked all the logging road access points, but continued on to 1st, taking a left onto Beck, followed by a right onto Summit. Yeah, and really what that means is that the dogs looped up to where Lindsay's house was, overshot it, and then came back down that first street, and first street connects to Beck, which takes you back out onto that main road that is now called Summit at that point. Work was continued until the team crossed over the bridge where the handler halted the canine as the trail was heading out of town. So the dog in scent and working at the time of the halt. So he was still working, but the handler halted him because he was starting to get so far out. And then we had a second canine, canine Ben, 
perimeter walked around the front yard and into the roadway in front of 647 Maple, Michaela's house. And where did he go? So K-9 takes trail and goes to the left, works across the front lawns of the homes and heads east. K-9 does a four corners check at the corner of 7th and continues east onto Maple. K-9 does another four corners check at 6th. K-9 turned south to head up 6th Street, initially on the right side of the road, before crossing over to the left side and taking a left onto Pine. So essentially the same route that the first K-9 took. Correct. So K-9 heads down Pine, which is east, crossing over Main to the right side of the road. K-9 stays on Main, past Pine, to cut through the bus station area up the side stairs and down the front stairs, cutting across the parking area to reach 3rd Street. K-9 went north on 3rd along the right side of the road, turning right onto Momsen, right onto 1st, but left onto 1st to go up a narrow roadway. 1st Street? Question mark. There's literally no street markings on that street. Behind the homes of Momsen. So K-9 turns left onto Birch, right back onto Momsen, K-9 continued on Momsen to the very end of the road, which was a locked gate. At this point, K-9 leaves the roadway to continue west, but behind the homes until reaching 1st Street, where K-9 Ben turned right to head north. K-9 continued north, checking all access roads on both the left and right sides of the roadway at the intersection with Beck. K-9 turned left to head west, and then turn right to head north on Summit. Team continued to track past the bridge where Canine Jack was halted. So both dogs followed Summit Road over a bridge, which is too far out of town, and were both halted. Why do they halt a dog search if the dogs are still on a trail? Uh, The handler halts them for fatigue. After working for as long as they work. They want to make sure that their results are not based on fatigue. And that's why this handler, I believe, had two dogs, is so that they could utilize both dogs, but each dog would get a rest in between. Gotcha. They start to go out of town. They go into this area that's new homes. They cross over Elma Hicklin. And around this area, it becomes this small housing development just outside of McCleary City proper. I Mm -hmm. guess. So we're still in McCleary technically, but now we're out by the county line. Mm -hmm. In this region, both of the dogs are heading out of town on Summit, Mm -hmm. and then they cross over Elma Hicklin. So they head out there and they go into this resident area, and both of the dogs, it appears, goes to the same property. Is that what you see in the search too? Yes. They, it says Canine Jack was walked back down Summit away from the road split to allow canine to clean start and approach perimeter walked and canine placed to the east side of the road in vegetation jack was scented and released to work canine took trail heading east up route 108 for a very short distance before crossing over 108 to cut behind the bargain barn to circle behind the business to return to summit heading north and then it gives you know several people's addresses but the dog eventually crosses over Elma Hicklin and summit becomes 
McConkie Avenue to continue north following the road where it changes to McConkie Lane. So the dog stays on that road heading west and ends up on that. I mean, that's the road that it ends up on is McConkie. So Canine continued a very short distance down McConkie before self-halted and reversing to again approach the driveway. Now Ben basically gets to go again, and they do the same procedure with him, and he ends up at the same address on McConkie. Canine Jack crossed over Alma Hicklin and Summit, which becomes McConkie Avenue. Canine continues north following the road where it changes to McConkie Lane. Staying on the road, heading west, Canine continues until reaching beep McConkie Lane. Canine turned right to enter driveway of residence. Canine was halted by handler and returned to the roadway. Canine asked to find some more. Canine Jack continued a very short distance down McConkie before self-halted and reversing to again approach the driveway of beep McConkie Lane. Canine again halted by handler and returned to roadway. Ben is run number four, so Canine Ben is deployed west of McConkie Lane to confirm scent presence. So Canine does a perimeter, walks west of address, harnessed, scented, and released to work. Canine Ben took the trail heading west on McConkie. Just before left turn of the roadway, Ben self-halted and refused to go further. Task was halted by handler. And now both Ben and Jack have continued a very short distance down the road and they've self-halted and reversed going to approach that same driveway. Basically what we're reading here is that both the dogs were scented again with the black pullover and both of them continued to go to beep McConkie Lane. In runs performed, they do negative scent indications all around. The only place that they positively scent at is beep. On ninth run, Jack is deployed at the location of the cul-de-sac near a subdivision off of Summit Road. Canine Jack takes the trail going back up the roadway heading towards Summit. Upon reaching Summit, Jack turned to the left to the north of Summit. Canine in scent and working when halted by handler. After Canine Jack was halted, the harness was removed and the dog was cued to search for human remains. So this is a cadaver task we're talking about. Yeah. So the field is searched from the east to the west. The handler walked down the middle of the area, the dog coursing left to right of the handler searching for cadaver scent. At the end, by the fenced area, the handler halted the canine. No alerts or body language changes consistent with being in a cadaver scent. Negative for cadaver scent. Now we have a note. What's interesting is the note, and we don't know who this is. Between the chain to dogs, a man indicated as Paul to the handler came out from his home to speak with the handler. For the conversation of several minutes, Handler and Paul discussed the disappearance of Lindsey Baum, his role in search efforts, the factors why he left the search group, and the song he authored for Lindsey, etc. 
His handler was getting out Ben. Paul returned to his home. There was a guy that did author a song for Lindsay and was part of the search efforts, and his name, I believe, is Paul. And so I don't know if that's why they referenced him as that, but when I first read it, I just about shat myself. I think that's who they're talking about in that that's note. That's that weird he also Baby wrote Jesus Lindsay song, too. right? Yes. You remember hearing that? You sent it to me. Yeah, it's I creepy did. AF. Girl, run 5A, canine Jack, scent article, black pullover pad to verify lack of scent. Team was driven further around the elbow onto Lescume Court to the area just before Allen Avenue. Canine Jack was casted, scented, and released to work. Canine Jack did not take trail or leave handler's area. Negative scent indication. Moved further up the road toward McConkey, flag 073, and again tested for scent presence. Negative scent indication by Canine Jack. Run 5B, moved further north until just before the elbow turned onto McConkey. Canine Jack casted, scented, and released to work. So Canine turned to head back up McConkey East until reaching beep, where Jack again turned to head down the driveway. Canine halted by handler and returned to roadway. <clears throat> canine halted by handler and returned to roadway. So now we're on to run six, where we're giving Jack a break, and Ben is going to be scented with the same black pullover pad. Canine Ben walked west up McConkey, passed beep. Canine casted, scented, and released to work. Canine went east on McConkey until reaching beep, where canine turned to enter driveway. Canine halted by handler and returned to roadway. So at this point, both of the dogs have returned how many times to beep? They've each returned, I guess, three times each now. They've both scented to this. We're on to run 7A. Canine Jack and Ben released on Route 108, checked for scent at flag 077. Canine Jack was first deployed to determine if the subject's scent was present. Casted to both sides of the road, Canine Jack did not take trail or leave handler's location. Negative scent indication. So 7B is Ben is now casted to both sides of the road before deployed to determine if the subject scent was present. Canine Ben did not take trail or leave the handler's location. Negative scent indication. And Route 108 would be the route that you would take to leave McCleary and go towards Shelton to get out to 101 to get out to I-5. And so we're on. All it tells us is that neither dog got a scent going on 108. Right. So, so the dogs did 12 runs on March 24th, and the only place that they scented that day outside of town was beep, McConkey Lane. Now we're on to the 25th. Canine Ben stayed to the roadway until just past beep, McConkey. There, the dog left the roadway to cut through the trees to approach the residence. Canine entered the garage, went by the back door before coming to the front porch area. At this time, the homeowner came out with his standard poodle and spent several minutes conversing with Handler. The homeowner gave permission to go anywhere you want. The homeowner went back inside the home and the Handler allowed the canine to continue work. The disruption of the trail did cause some concentration issues with canine Ben, so canine circled the home 
and a small shed at the front of the residence. Just at the left turn to the road, Canine Ben self-halted to reverse back to the beep property, cutting through the woods to the residence. Canine halted by handler at this point. So run 14 is Jack. And now we have the homeowner's permission to just be all around this property and the dogs seem to be heading toward the tree line, yes. which would connect us to a property that at the time was owned by Paul Beaker. Canine Jack. Sent article, black pullover pad. Canine immediately turned to head west on McConkie. Canine turned without hesitation into the driveway of beep McConkie Lane. Canine went around the home to the right, over the wooded footbridge, through a gate, through several barbed wire fences, avoiding several electric fences, past the stock barn at the back of the property, and through the tubular gate at the roadway to the left on West Oak Meadow Road. Canine Jack was pulling hard and steady, turning north on West Bonneview. Due to the fact that the flankers were left on McConkie, Handler halted Canine to walk back to move the flankers up to West Oak Meadow. Okay, so what this tells us on Run 14, Canine Jack went back to beep McConkie and then went past it. The dog literally ran through the woods and through barbed wire and ended up on his property and ran out to Oak Meadow. So there was no hesitation by Canine to continue up West Bonneview to the very top of the road by the home located there. And that is right behind that is where the community, their water system. Yeah. Um, but lacking permission to continue, the Canine was walked back out and tested for scent presence at the next lower driveway to the east. Canine did turn into the driveway but self-halted a short distance in. So the dog pulled hard all the way up to that top driveway where the water system's at. The there was a, now run 15, same thing. Canine Jack. Went to beep McConkey, was halted. He turned himself around to immediately head west on West Oak Meadow Road. So now we're back on Paul Yeah, Beaker's he did the road. same exact thing. He went through the yep. tubular gate. Yeah. Yep. Based on the canine working behavior, the scent pad used appears valid for intended subject of search, Lindsay Baum. Positive tracks by both Canine Ben and Canine Jack from the point last seen heading east into town. Positive tracks by both Canine Ben and Canine Jack heading out of McCleary. Dogs are able to scent her where she would have been. Her normal and the, routes. Her normal routes. Okay. And the one route that they can scent her that is not a normal route is a property owned by Paul Beaker, who is currently under indictment for criminal sexual assault, and he is in that position because his DNA matches the rape kit. Lindsay's scent in, is present in the area of beep McConkie Lane. <laughs> I wish everybody could see the neck thing that you just did with that. There is attitude. We are rightfully pissed off. Canine behavior suggests that she was brought in from the driveway area and then taken out the property's back gate onto West Oak Meadow. When dropped at other locations, canines either gave negative scent indications or trailed back into the McConkie Lane area or the indicated logging road. I think what they're saying is, is that, because if you look at when dropped at other locations, canines either gave negative scent indications or trailed their way back to McConkie Lane, and we already know once they do that, they head to the tree line on the property every time. 
Yeah. Well, and we did speak to Melissa Baum too. We did. We asked if she had any reason to be out in that area, and her response was no. Um, and you have to figure that if we're operating under the assumption that she didn't go into the store where she got the mood ring, the volunteer. The most likely scenario is is she was afraid that it was getting dark and that she got into a car with an adult she thought she knew because she was afraid to be outside maybe in the dark and it was getting late because there's no sign of a struggle. And I think we all agree that if you're wearing Toms and someone snatches you and you're a feisty little kid, you're going to kick and like kick your shoe off. And I highly doubt on a main street in that small town that the guy's stopping to grab the shoes and like police up before he skedaddles. Or try to take off fast. You would see tire marks or something like but that. But it doesn't matter. Either way, she's been taken, right? And so at this point, she's taken, and now the dogs are sending her out of her normal areas out towards a known predator's property, and that's where they've triangulated the scent. And regardless of what else happens, that's where the dogs lead to. And that is not admissible in a court of law. And, no. oh, you're an HVAC guy, so you have your van, and HVAC guys install big old tubes that you put caps on and you glue joints together, and it's a pretty damn good place to hide a body. Really? That they're both little blonde girls, I mean... Sorry. A type. It's a type. Yeah. We're talking McCleary, and for people who don't know the Pacific Northwest, you guys spoke about it in the first two episodes, but this, like, Ellensburg from McCleary is ours, people. Yeah, we live in the Pacific Northwest. Ellensburg is eastern Washington. We have two different FBI jurisdictions in Washington State because we have so many... It's on, serial it's killings. like there's the Cascade Mountain it's Range. It's right on the line. Yeah. Literally. And there's also about five different jurisdictions that these crimes fall into. Yeah. We've got so many different counties. We're on the Olympic Mountain Range. Yeah. Like, McCleary's the gateway to the Olympic Peninsula, you know, the South Olympic Peninsula beaches. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful area. It is really beautiful. Yeah, don't It's look. a little gray in Gray's Harbor, though, I gotta say. It's hey, man, the name fits it. It but, really does. I mean, sorry, Melissa. What are the chances that a scent team just happens to end up right near Beaker's place? I'm not a betting gal, but... That's one bet I wouldn't take. And it wasn't just one dog. Multiple dogs scented to the edge of the property and then halted because the handlers didn't have permission to advance. So, needless to say, we think that the Beaker property outside of McCleary really needs to be searched. Even though we know that this report in and of itself isn't enough to obtain a search warrant. I have a book, but it's about cadaver dogs. Same. (laughs) I think we have the same book. We'd also like to take a moment to thank everyone who's provided info to us so far. Dog search information, for instance, was brought to us by people who'd been sleuthing the case from the get-go. Just to keep listeners in the loop, in addition to looking at suspects as they arise, we're also looking at potentially linked crimes. Lindsay may have been at one and done, but I find that hard to believe. I mean, why pull off the perfect crime and then never do it again? So we're looking into other cases of missing and murdered out there in Washington State to get a sense of other victims. That brings us to the end of Truth in the Shadow. On our next episode, we'll be speaking to a local Ellensburg historian who has been researching this case with me for the last few years. 
In the meantime, we have come to this episode's edition of Shit We Wanna Know. Did we ever find out anything about that guy seen in the Shell Station footage? No. Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't think that sighting was a bit of a nothing burger. Although, given that when the truck was spotted, those folks probably would have been helpful witnesses at the time. At this point, they probably don't remember anything, though. But I do digress. For today's shit we want to know, we want any and all information you might have about Beaker's vehicles. Yeah, we know that he had a Jeep Cherokee and a Geo Metro, but we don't know what color those vehicles were. So we'd really appreciate it if you could let us know if you know what the colors of Paul's vehicles are, and if you know of any additional vehicles that he owns that we're not aware of. Yep, hit us up on our website or any of our social media accounts if you have information about this shit we want to know. Don't be shy. Rest assured, you will remain anonymous. Oh, and hey, something I wanted to tell you about. We got a shout out from another podcast called the After Work Murder Club. Yeah, yay! Thank you for the shout out. Now these ladies... They're doing episodes um, with different focuses for each of their episodes, and they're a weekly podcast. And I know we're doing things a little bit differently, but the craziest thing is they released their first ever episode on the same day that we release our ever first released episode. And the focus for both of ours was Lindsay Baum. Oh, wow. Awesome. Right? I mean, it goes back to that whole, it takes a village, and that's what it's going to take in Lindsay's case, so... What a cool thing that we both had the same idea and released it on the same day. So we want to give a big shout out to After Work Murder Club. These girls are intelligent and funny, and you should go check them out. Yeah, and we'd strongly encourage that listeners listen to as many podcasts about Lindsay as possible, because honestly, the more information you have, especially if you're committed to helping solve this case... The better you, the better equipped you are to, you know, try to come up with potential suspects that haven't been looked at before, and so forth. Did you know that eighty percent of all cases that include minors are girls from twelve to seventeen years of age? In twenty twenty alone, almost four hundred thousand juveniles were abducted in the United States, and eighty percent of child abductions by strangers occur within a quarter of a mile of the child's home. Roughly seventy five percent of abduction murders occur within three hours after the child goes missing. If you see something, say something. And that brings us to the end of episode three. On our next episode, we're going to be taking a closer look at the body disposal site in Ellensburg. Thanks for listening, and you can find us at all the usual places, truthintheshadow.com, our Instagram handle, truthintheshadow, Facebook page, truthintheshadow podcast, and of course through our email at truthintheshadow at gmail.com. Such a good thing. look in the 90s. Oh my god, that dress. <laughs> okay. This is my Anyways. best dress. I know, and your hair stripes are <laughs> awesome. That was cool before my time. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> sorry microphone. Tascam. That's her name, Tascam. Tasky. Tasky, yeah. It's my Tasky. girlfriend. <laughs> Okay, not Whoa. Like that. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. <laughs> so for every <laughs> totally realized the moment I said it and you looked at me, I was like, oh fuck. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
there's no video. Whoa. 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 Edit, edit, rollback. Ro- edit, rollbacks. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so warm.